David's giving his rebuttal against that error. And we pick it up in verse 8 and we'll read down through verse 9. So it's our uh, joy and privilege to read the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and given for our edification and blessing. So the Apostle Peter writes in verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So Peter is dealing with this false teaching that denies the second coming. If you look back up in verse 4, this is what they were saying, that is, the false teachers. They said, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So the false teachers were saying, look, we don't see any evidence of divine intervention in history. Everything is moving along ever since creation, just rocking along at a slow, methodical pace. There's no great divine intervention. So we don't believe this great divine intervention of the second coming is going to happen. Because God hasn't shown that that's the way He operates. Which is pretty silly that they would even throw up that kind of an argument to begin with. But we saw last week in verses 5-8 through that Peter exposes the fallacy of this thinking when he says, don't you remember that God created everything? That's a little bit of a divine intervention, I would say. He created the universe. He brought the, the land out of the water. I mean, this is, this is humongous. This is huge. And then he said, not only that, God destroyed the ancient world with the flood of Noah. That was a worldwide destruction. That's a divine intervention on a cosmic scale, if you will. And not only that, the Word of God, which cannot be wrong, God cannot lie, has promised He's going to come destroy the earth again and the heavens. So again, God has in the past and will in the future intervene in very tremendous ways so, denying the second coming based upon your presupposition falls. It fails. It's a fallacy. Because God has intervened in incredible ways in the past, and He will intervene again when Christ comes again. So, He shoots down their worldview. He shoots down their view of uh, uniformitarianism, that everything in history just kind of creeps along at, at the same pace that God has intervened in some very dramatic ways. So now in verse 8 and 9, Peter takes up another aspect of his rebuttal. Because the false teachers have argued that basically time is up for Christ to return. Christ hasn't returned as of yet. And they would claim that this proves our case that He's not going to return. And so they actually say that uh, 
Christ promised to return soon. That's probably the way they're understanding it. But He has not returned, so He will not return. The fact that He hasn't come back already indicates that He's not coming back at all. And so that's part of their logic. And what Peter is going to say is that they are deceived. They are putting a stopwatch on God's promise to return. And in their view, the false teacher's view, God was long overdue and they interpreted that that proved their case that He wasn't coming back at all. Now remember, part of the motivation of this is that they don't want to be held accountable for their sin. They're living in sin. They're living in sensuality. They don't want to believe in a future day of judgment. So the easiest way is just to deny it in connection with the second coming. So what Peter is going to point out to them is they don't understand two things. They don't understand God's eternal nature. And secondly, they don't understand God's redemptive purpose. And so that's what he's going to delve into in verse 8 and 9. So look at what he says in verse 8. And this, uh, he is laying out God's eternal nature. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So he's writing to the believers in the churches and he says, don't forget that God is eternal. That a thousand years to us is just like a day to God. And a day to God is like a thousand years to us or whatever. And God is eternal is the essence of what he's saying. So that what may appear a long time to us is a very short time to God. A thousand years to us is just like a day to God. So basically, God inhabits eternity. And you false teachers, you're trying to put a stopwatch on how long it takes God to fulfill His promise. And you can't do that. Because God has a different relationship to time than we do. God inhabits eternity. We inhabit a life limited to seconds and hours and a few years. A long time to us is but a speck of a moment to God. As Peter says, again, a thousand years of our time is just like a day to God. God has a different relationship to time. God is eternal. He's omnipresent in time and in space. And all times are equally near to God. God is not bound in any way by our time. And it's interesting that... uh, when he points this out to these believers, he says, don't let this escape your notice. It has escaped apparently the notice of the false teachers that are, that are denying the second coming that God is eternal. But don't let it escape your notice, beloved. Understand, remember it, that God is eternal. Some of the other scriptures that emphasize this very truth For example, Job 36, verse 26 says the number of his years is unsearchable. 
Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So He's not bound by time at all. He's eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. So, so we live under time. God lives above time. He's not bound by time. And all of God's promises will be, filled, be fulfilled in His time. That's the point that Peter's making. You false teachers, basically, it's been 30 years since Jesus said He's going to come back and you're already giving up on the promise. You're already accusing God that He won't fulfill it and it's only been 30 years. And you say because He hasn't come back by now, He's not going to come back at all that the promise is going to fail. It's only been 30 years. And a thousand years of our time is just like a day to God. But He's going to fulfill that promise, but He'll do it in His time, not your time. And that's a wonderful truth that Peter is reminding these believers of. It kind of goes back to another promise found in Habakkuk. Not necessarily with the second coming of Christ, but notice how Habakkuk had to encourage the believers back then. He says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And you could understand the same thing about the second coming. The second coming will occur It has its appointed time. Only the Father knows when. It will not fail. And though it appears to us, based upon our calendars, that it it will tarry, then we must wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. It will arrive exactly when God ordains it to come. So that was true in Habakkuk's day of the promises of judgment. And it's also true of Peter's day in reference to the second coming. So this is one of the things that the uh, false teachers were doing. They were, you know, putting their, their timer on the Lord and they're assuming that if he hadn't come back yet, then the whole promise is, is null and void. But obviously Peter is saying, look, you can't put our clock on God. His promise will come to pass, but it will come to pass in His time. And His time is different than our time. Notice what he says in verse 8 again. He says that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now notice, Peter is not really speaking of a literal mathematical formula for determining the age of God. He doesn't say one day is a thousand years to God and a thousand years is one day to God, but it's like one day. A thousand years is like one day. So it's not intended to be any kind of a mathematical formula for determining that for God, a thousand years of our time is literally one day of His time. 
some of the early church fathers kind of went astray with this idea because they said that the six days of creation are God's days, which means that basically church history is going to last for 6,000 years, six days of creation. Somehow, I still don't understand how they extrapolated this, but they said that therefore we're going to have 6,000 years of history, then the end will come, and there'll be a final thousand year millennial kingdom, which is not anywhere in this passage for sure, and that's not what Peter is referring to. This is not a literal expression of any kind of way to determine time with God because God is eternal. That's also true because if you look at Psalm 90 written by Moses, which Peter is drawing this analogy from, look at what Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it passes by. Okay, so that's a thousand years of our time is like a day when it passes by in your time. Okay, so far so good. But then he goes on to add, or as a watch in the night. So Moses is saying that God, a thousand years of our time is like a day to you, or it's like a three-hour period, a watch in the night, which lasted for three hours. You see how imprecise it is. So that Peter is not trying to give us a literal formula for defining and understanding eternity. God is eternal. You could say a thousand years is as a second or a microsecond or a nanosecond to God. I mean, there's no way you can, you can quantify it in that way. God is eternal. And because of that, when the false teachers are putting a a stopwatch on God, they're misunderstanding it because God is eternal and He fulfills His promises exactly according to His time. And it may take longer than our time or what we want, but it will come according to His time. So the false teachers want to put God in a time box but they cannot dictate to God when He's going to fulfill His promise. So when they say, well, you know what, looking at the calendar, you know, Christ hasn't come back, spent 30 years, so obviously that promise isn't going to take place. Peter is saying, you just don't understand the eternal nature of God. God is eternal. He doesn't operate based upon our calendars, our clocks, our watches. And by the way, that's true in your life and my life as well. Too often times we uh, want God to do things based upon our clock, our watches, our calendars, and He doesn't operate that way. He does it when He wants to do it, when the time is wise and best according to His nature. And we have to learn to trust Him. So the first thing that Peter is saying to these false teachers is that you don't understand God's eternal nature. Your denial is based upon a false understanding of God. You're trying to cooping up, coop Him up into some time box based upon how we calculate time. But God is eternal and His promises will come to pass according to His time. And then we move on into verse 9, which is a very controversial verse in many ways. Peter says, and this is where Peter now gives the reason why God is delayed as we think of delay. 
in Christ not coming back yet. He says, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Because God is eternal, His timing is different than ours, and God's apparent slowness is not due to God forgetting or God being indifferent or God unable to bring it to pass, it's because He has a redemptive purpose that He's carrying it out. So He is delaying because He is saving His people. And that's the reason why He is slow as some count slowness. So it's because He has people He wants to save. So that's the general idea. The false teachers don't understand that. That's why Christ hasn't come back and it's been 2,000 years now since Christ has made that promise. And He still has not come back yet. He most certainly will. But He will delay as long as it takes to save all of His people. And then He will come back. So there's a, a great redemptive purpose that is behind God ordaining for Christ not to come back for at least 2,000 years. Again, for the false teacher, it was only 30 years. But for us, of course, it's been a much longer period of time. So notice when we look at verse 9, that Peter writes again, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. The sum here would be the false prophets and their followers who say, look, He's slow, it's not going to happen. The Lord is not slow about His promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the purpose of God to save sinners justifies the delay of the timing of Christ's return. Okay, because He's doing it to save sinners. Okay, so when we look at the end of verse 9, however, we have to grapple with the theological issues that are involved here. That it says that God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, and for all to come to repentance. So how do we understand that? Who does the any and the all refer to? Well, let's break down into some of the differing views on this. First, we'll look at the Arminian view. And basically it says, it interprets verse 9 as saying that God desires to save everyone without exception. But He leaves it up to the sinner's free will to make that choice. So Christ hasn't come back because He's patient with sinners and He's waiting and watching and He wishes for all to repent and all to come and not to perish. So he, He's waiting. He's wanting people to, to be saved. And God won't actually save them, but He leaves it up to their free will decision. And that's a popular view today. Many Christians hold that view. There are many theological problems with that particular view. Number one, uh, 
the whole notion of free will is certainly challenged by Scripture. When Jesus said that no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, that somehow implies that no one has a free will. They cannot come. If their will was free, then they would be able to come. But Jesus says no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws them. Paul says we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. So God could wait forever and nobody would repent because their wills don't, don't want to go to Christ. We also have a bunch of verses. I won't go through a bunch of them. That salvation is ultimately according to God's choice and not ours. Ephesians 1.4 Paul says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless. So you have the doctrines of election, the doctrine of human depravity that kind of run against this notion of the Arminian view. Also, is it really true? Is it really true that God is is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come repentance? Is it really true? No, it is not true if you take it in that in that light. That God wants to save everybody. God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That simply is not true. Because God has willed for many to perish. For example, if God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? If He wanted him to repent and get saved, why did God prevent him by hardening his heart? Why does God in Romans 1 give some a depraved mind that is only rebellious against God? Why in 2 Thessalonians 2 does Paul write that God sent a deluding influence upon them so that they believe what is false? Why did God do that if God really desires for None to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why did God do that to those sinners? If God desires the salvation of all men, then why did He destroy untold thousands in Noah's flood? Why did He end their ability to repent and believe? Why did He kill them and cause them to perish in the flood? Why did God do that? If He wants everyone to be saved. Why did He kill all of the Sodomites in Sodom and Gomorrah with brimstone and fire? Why did He call upon the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites without mercy in Deuteronomy chapter 20? Why did Peter tell us already that God has ordained the destruction and judgment of the false teachers even in this letter if God truly desires the salvation of all men? If God loves all men equally and desires to save all men, Why does the psalm say that God hates those who are evil? Or why did not God give more miracles to Tyre and Sidon? Because Jesus says if they had received more miracles, they would have repented. Why didn't God give them more miracles? And then they would have repented. But He did not. Why does God as a divine potter make in Romans 9 some vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? 
if God is not willing for any to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. See, the truth of Scripture, if you just read it clearly, is that God wills for many to perish in their sin. And He brings about their judgment and their death. So on the one hand, when you interpret this, that God is wishing, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, and you say that refers to everybody in the human race, you run into all kinds of problems in the Bible where God, in fact, does will many to perish and He cuts off their opportunity to repent. But if He wanted them to do that, why did He do those things? Why did He bring those kinds of judgments? So there's a, there's a huge problem with this Arminian interpretation of this particular verse, in my opinion. Because God, of course, wills for some to perish. So, there's another view, and this is a popular view, and I'm calling it the Calvinist view number one. And this is the view that God has two wills. He has a decretive will where He decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And He also chooses whom He's going to say, but He also has a will of desire. So according to this particular view, God has two wills and the will of desire is expressed here in verse 9. That God genuinely desires for all to repent and for nobody to perish. That is God's heart. That is God's will of desire. That's what He wishes. That's what He, he wants on a certain level. But the other will that God has is He's only chosen to save some. So God has two wills that almost seem to conflict. One can fail the will of desire. The other one cannot fail His decretive will. So this is a popular view even among certain Reformed people. For example, John Piper holds this view. Uh, Thomas Schreiner holds that view. Even John Calvin seems to uh, hold that view in his commentary. So the idea again is that God has a genuine desire that He doesn't wish or desire for anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. But on the other hand, since nobody will be saved, He chooses the elect to save them and them only. This is, again, a very popular view among people who hold to the doctrine of election. So the emphasis here, again, is on that God has these two wills. Now, I think in a sense we can understand that God has two wills, but I'm going to use their view of God's will of desire, which can fail. He desires the salvation of everybody, but obviously everybody doesn't get saved. But He also has His decretive will where He chooses and foreordains some to be saved. Okay, to, to do that, let's look at this word for wishing. Because it all is based upon how you understand this word of God is not wishing. Now, some of your translations may have God is not willing. But the New American Standard has wishing, which would at least on the surface fit with that idea. 
This particular word for wishing or willing is really a better translation is the Greek word bulamai. It occurs 37 times in the New Testament, seven times of God. So what we want to do is briefly look at three verses, three of the seven verses, where this word bulamai for wishing or willing is used of God and see what it means when it actually refers to God's will. And we're going to see that this word is consistently used not of God's will of desire that may or may not come to pass, but of God's sovereign, effectual will that will come to pass. So let's look at the one of the verses. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So Jesus is saying, nobody knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The idea of the desire that may or may not take place, the will of desire doesn't fit here. It's clearly the idea of the Son chooses whom He's going to reveal the Father to. And in the context and in the Gospels, that's the idea. So it's not of God just, of Jesus just saying, well, you know, I really desire to reveal Him to certain people, but it may or may not come to pass. No, whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And these are the ones who's going to know the Father. <clears throat> so I think this particular verse speaks of Christ's will in a very sovereign, effectual way. How about the same word used of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12.11? But one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So now this verse refers to the Holy Spirit giving spiritual gifts. And God, and it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit just desires to give gifts, but He may fail in giving gifts. No, He gives each believer a gift distributing to each one individually just as He wills, as He chooses, as He determines. It's a sovereign decision by the Holy Spirit. It's an effectual decision so that the gift you have spiritually was not something you got to Pick out of a list. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gave you that gift. Okay? That's the same word, bulamai. And the last one I want us to look at is James chapter 1, verse 18. James wrote, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. So here again, the will of God is not just God desiring it's the will of God that is sovereign and effectual. In the exercise of God's sovereign will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He caused us to be born again. That was His sovereign, effectual will bringing that to pass. That's the idea. So when we come back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I really question this view that the uh, will of desire that can fail is what is meant by the Apostle Peter. In fact, I think I don't prefer the translation wishing. I think willing is better. 
And the willing here is God's sovereign, effectual will. So what Peter is saying is that God is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That God sovereignly and effectually is willing that none perish, but all to come to repentance. So if you take that meaning of the word, which I think is the proper meaning of it, now suddenly you end up with a theological problem. So God is not willing for any to perish. God sovereignly doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He effectually will cause cause everyone to come to repentance. If that's the right view, then what do you end up with? But universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. And that clearly is not what the Scriptures teach. So now we come to the third view, which I prefer. Granted, there's a lot of differing opinions on these things. But when you come to verse 9, Peter is writing that God is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the any and the all do not refer to the whole human race, but it refers uniquely to the ones receiving the letter. It refers to the the believers, not the whole human race. Now let's look at this for a moment. Look at how he begins this. And let me switch the slide. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. That would be the false teachers and those who follow the false teachers. But is patient toward you. Not willing for any of you to perish and for all of you to come to repentance. I think that's the idea. Notice how Peter has contrasted the some from the you. He's already made a distinction within the human race. Some count slowness and deny the second coming. That's the false teachers. That's those who follow the teaching of the false teachers. But God is patient towards you. Now, when you when you do interpretation of the Bible, one of the things you learn early on is that you have to interpret things in their context. In fact, Years ago, I had my real estate license and they always told us when it comes to property values, there's three things that are important and it's location, location, location. Well, in a similar way, when it comes to interpretation, there are three things that are important and it's context, context, and context. So, Peter is saying God is patient towards you. So, who is the you? Well, obviously... It's the readers, it's the believers in these churches, but let's see how he has described them. Four times in Second Peter chapter 3, he calls them beloved. And one of them is in verse 8. Right in the context of what we're looking at. Don't let this escape your notice, beloved. So the you that he's addressing in verse 9 are the beloved. Well, how else does he describe these readers? Well, in his first letter, 1 Peter, if you can remember way back there, he called them the chosen. They were chosen aliens. Chosen by God. 
chosen aliens. In 1 Peter 2.9, He called them a chosen race whom God called out of darkness into His marvelous light. He called them a chosen race. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, referring to the same churches, the same believers, He said, you have received a faith like ours. And if you go back and look at our study of that particular verse, the word received means to receive by the drawing of lots. Which is a biblical way to say you received it because God chose you and gave it to you. You have a faith that is a God-given faith. That's the idea. So, when we come back and, and look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it seems that Peter is addressing the you who are the beloved, the chosen of God, or the elect of God, and those who have received a God-given faith. That's the you in verse 9. God is patient toward you, not willing for any of you to perish and all of you to come to repentance. And I think that's a better interpretation of verse 9. It's consistent with the word willing because God will will and sovereignly, effectually bring all of the elect, the chosen ones, to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's consistent with the word for willing in there. It's not just a a will of desire which can fail. God desires to save everybody, but most people won't get saved. It's not that kind of a desire. It's the desire where God sovereignly, effectually brings it to pass. So that's the meaning of the word in verse 9. And this particular view fits well with that. Also, no one can come to repentance unless God gives them that gift of repentance. Remember, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 5 that God granted repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a gift given by God. God isn't just in heaven waiting for people to repent because no one will repent unless God grants them repentance. He did it to Israel in Acts 5.31. He does it to the Gentiles in Acts 11.18. Referring to Cornelius, Peter says, well then God, or the people say, well then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God granted that gift to them, to those who believed and repented and got saved. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that the godly men should with gentleness correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps. God may not grant them repentance, but God may grant them repentance, so deal kindly with them, deal gently with those who disagree, share the Gospel with them with gentleness. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance must be granted by God. So I think what Peter is saying in verse 9, it's my opinion, that when he says, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you. You who are the chosen of God. You who have received a 
a gift of faith and a gift of repentance by God's grace. He is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. And that's why Christ has not come back yet. Because there's still some of God's elect in the world that have not yet come to repentance by God's grace. And Christ will not come back until He saved every one of those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world to save. And I think the elect that have not come to faith are also included in that verse 9. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So Paul says, you know what? My ministry is not only to the elect that have come to faith, my ministry is also to the chosen, the elect who have not yet come to faith yet. And I'm going to go out and preach and, and God will save them too. So He endures all things for the sake of those chosen so that those who have not yet come to faith may obtain salvation in Christ. So back to verse 9, it seems to me the best view of this is that the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness because He has a redemptive purpose. He will not come back until He has saved all of those chosen from before the foundation of the world. There's some of those who have still not yet come to faith and God will save them in His time according to His purpose. And until that happens, He will not come back. But when the last one of those chosen of God are redeemed and brought to faith in Christ, then the Lord Jesus will come back. So you false teachers, you've totally misunderstood and misinterpreted the delay of God. He's not slow as you count slowness, but He's working out His decree of salvation. He is not willing. He will not let. He will not allow for any of His chosen ones to be lost. But He will bring them to repentance and they will not perish. And I think that, in my view, that's uh, the best way to understand verse 9. Jesus said in John chapter 6, This is the will of Him who sent Me, that of all that He has given Me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So God's will is not being frustrated. God's will is not being thwarted. All is happening just as He planned. God will save His elect. None of them will be lost. And that's why Christ has not yet come back. There are still some of the chosen that still need to have faith in Christ and repent of their sins. And Christ will bring that about at His own time and according to His own pleasure. So wrapping this up, I know that's a head full of uh, theology, but verse 9, again, there's many different ways to interpret it. But I think that's the best way that fits not only with the meaning of the word willing, but also with the context of who Peter is actually addressing the letter to. So in wrapping this up, how should we respond to that? Those of us in this room this morning. Well, I think we should certainly be 
thankful to God for His patience, for allowing time for us to be born, for us to sin, and yet for us to be saved. We should be thankful that God had patience upon us. That He has given us that blessed hope of glory when Christ returns. We were unworthy of salvation. We were unable to come to Christ for salvation. We were unwilling to come. Not only unable, we were unwilling to come. But God called us. He drew us to Christ. And lo and behold, here we are. The bride of Christ with the hope of glory, awaiting the return of our, of our Savior when we'll be ushered into His presence forever and ever and enjoy and worship Him throughout all eternity. So one of the responses to this for us is to be thankful to God for His patience. Because His patience, Peter will later say in verse 15, is His salvation. His patience is bringing about the salvation of more sinners. And that's a glorious thing. There's another application I'd like to touch on as I did earlier. And that is God's clock is different than yours and mine. And so oftentimes we get frustrated because things don't happen when we want it to happen. I mean, most of us have a hard time in line when we're going to uh, McDonald's or we're getting our coffees at Starbucks and there's three cars ahead of us and one of them's taking more than 30 seconds to get their order and the dark side starts to erupt in your heart and mind and you start looking at them and you get a little bit angry. It's because we expect God to operate on our timing. We expect things to happen when we want them to happen. And yet God's timing is not your timing or my timing. And what God requires of us is to understand that He has an eternal nature that from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. And as much as we may pray for something to happen, pray for a blessing to come in our life, Pray for something to change or pray for a healing or pray for uh, uh, someone to be saved. And it doesn't happen yet. We must still learn to wait and trust in God because His clock, well, He doesn't have a clock. We have a clock, but God doesn't. And His timing is always perfect. And it's always according to His infinite wisdom. And what the children of God need to understand is that God determines how He will fulfill His promises to us and when He will fulfill His promises to us. And we must not become impatient with God. God will help us at exactly the right time God will intervene in your life. He will bring you what you need according to His wisdom. At His time, you can trust Him to help you. He is our helper. I love Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 41 verse 10. 
where God speaks through Isaiah to the people. And He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that is God's promise to you. And if you're trusting God for a blessing and it hasn't come yet, just know that God's in control. And you must learn to wait and trust in Him and know that His ways are perfect and His ways are always good for His children. To the unbeliever in closing, I want to say there's some of you here this morning that may not be believers. That God is still waiting. He is still saving sinners. And He will continue to do that until all of His chosen ones have come to faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're one of God's elect. And maybe it's time for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Know that God is eternal and that all of your sins are before Him at one time. The sins you committed today, the sins you committed yesterday, a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, all of those sins are before God as if they're happening right now. God looks upon you as a sinner but He offers you the free gift of everlasting life if you will but turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ alone because He alone can save you. The patience of God is salvation. He has given you this day. He is patiently waiting for His elect for the timing of their salvation. And this is the day of salvation for those who need it. Come to Christ. Place your faith upon Him. There is no more loving Savior than the Lord Jesus Christ. So gracious, so kind, so, so full of blessings for His people. You must come to Him and put your trust only in Christ. Trusting His shed blood upon the cross to pay the full penalty for the punishment of the sins that you owe to God. He died in the place of sinners just like you. Embrace Him. Believe upon Him and receive that free gift of everlasting life. Well, you may be here this morning and you may say, well, I don't know if I am of God's elect. I believe it. I believe in the doctrine. But I don't know if I'm one of God's elect or not. Well, you can settle that right now if you come to Christ in faith, if you repent and believe in Him, then you can know that you're numbered among God's chosen ones. Some people struggle with that question, but they can determine it right now on their end by believing and trusting Christ. And if God gives you that grace, then believe and come. And then you can know that you were chosen from before the foundation of the world to be a believer and a follower 
of the Lord Jesus. Come and drink of the water of life. If you do not come, then God will hold you accountable for your unbelief and your sins. And He will remind you that you heard the Gospel on this day when you came to church. That you had the opportunity. You were begged to come, but you chose not to come. And your condemnation will be completely upon your own head. But come today. Receive the free gift of everlasting life that Christ offers you. Come to Him. Come and be saved today. And may God help you to come. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for the the privilege that we had to grapple and struggle with the meaning of this challenging passage that we've studied today, Lord. And Lord, I I hope my view was correct. I believe it. But Lord, we, we do want to understand Your Word correctly. So Lord, we pray for the Spirit to give us insight into these things. But Lord, we thank You for the great encouragement that You're the eternal God. And as often as we are prone to become impatient, impatient with our spouse, impatient with our kids, and patient with things at work, Lord, just remind us that You have a purpose and a plan for everything, not only redemptive, but everything. And that Your timing is far greater and superior than ours. And when You delay, You test our faith, but You use it and do it in such a way to give us opportunities to grow spiritually. So just teach us patience, Lord, to trust in You, to wait upon You. For those who wait upon the Lord will be raised up with wings like eagles. And we pray that You'll teach us that truth. But Lord, if there's anyone here that has not yet put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, would You grant them repentance? Would You give them that gift of faith that they might turn from their sin and put their trust only in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life? Would You call them? Would You save them today for the glory of Your name? So Lord, thank You again for this time. Bless us. May our worship be pleasing to You and continue to draw us closer to Yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.